One podcast to record them all. One podcast to promote them. One podcast to publish them all. And the darkness subscribe to them. In the land of Zencast... Andrew, what are you doing? Um, nothing. <sighs> Fill with a podcaster. Welcome to Lord of the Rings Month. Hello everybody and welcome to the very first episode of the Lord of the Rings Month. My name's Satsunami and joining me to give me his sword, his bow and indeed his axe is none other than the one and only Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the Lord of the Rings Month. One doesn't simply record one podcast on Lord of the Rings. So I've been told. So how are you doing tonight, Andrew? I'm good, yeah. It's uh, Canadian Thanksgiving today, so it's a public holiday, which is very nice. The weather is a lot more autumnal than we've been used to the last few weeks, but yeah, I'm doing pretty well. It's that autumn weather, (laughs) isn't it? Just absolutely freezing, the trees are turning a different shade, and you know what? It's a perfect month to go inside and watch a whole lot of fantasy films. I thought you were going to say and to listen to some podcasts. Well, that too, yeah. So let's say theoretically your copy of Lord of the Rings doesn't work. Some red panda and or Trebi has come in and scratched the discs and you have to listen to our month. Yeah, why don't you listen to our Lord of the Rings month instead? But yeah, today we are excited because we are going to be talking about a franchise that, quite frankly, is very near and dear to both of us. And that, of course, is the Lord of the Rings. So for the next month, get cosy, get some Lambus bread to get some meat if you're of appropriate age. Sit down, get yourself comfy as we talk about this very iconic set of films. So in this episode, we are going to be focusing on the original three films. That, of course, being The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and last but not least, The Return of the King. Now, Tatsu, is it really the original Lord of the Rings films, though? Well, yes, that is a very good point. Because, surprisingly, this is isn't the first time they've tried to make an adaptation of Lord of the Rings, is it? No, there's been several different uh, well, attempts at making it, and there's been some animated versions of the Lord of the Rings films, as well as the Hobbit films. The trilogy we're talking about is the most well-regarded and most famous trilogy, the most watched of the Lord of the Rings adaptions. So we're quite excited. It's one of my favourite film franchises, and I believe it's one of Satsunami's favourite film franchises as well. So it's been a long time coming to talk about them. So what you're saying is we're not reviewing the 1970s Ralph Bakshi version. No, we're not going to do the Rankin Bass <laughs> ones either. Oh, man. <laughs> the uh, Beatles did one too, didn't they? Was that the uh, Ralph Bakshi one as well, or is that different? No, I don't think they actually got to do it, but yeah, I'll be striking that off the trivia episode. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't believe when I read that, that the Beatles, of all people, wanted to do an adaptation of Lord of the Rings. That actually blew me away. I was like, really? Not to take the ring to Mordor, Frodo. Oh no. (laughs) Destroying the ring with peace and love. As you said, unfortunately, we are with the smelly Peter Jackson films, you know, critically acclaimed ones. I have to say, touching on that point, it's interesting because up until that point, it was kind of considered that The Lord of the Rings was almost unfilmable because obviously they did try with the Ralph Bakshi one, they tried with the Rankin Bass, they are animated ones, of course, but they're completely different. And this was in 1978 and 1980, so it wasn't really 
the best of attempts. But before we get into the backstory about these films, what is your history with these films, Andrew? Were you always a fan of Lord of the Rings? Did you read the books or...? Not quite. As long as I can remember, I've been a fan of the movies. I watched them as they came out in the cinema. I was absolutely obsessed with the movies. I thought it was wonderful. I did not read the book trilogy and I still have never read the book trilogy because I started it and I just couldn't get into J.R.R. Tolkien's style of writing. That was kind of a big hurdle for me and because I already had such a keen interpretation of the story through the movies, I kind of wanted to keep that as what I understood of the movies, of the story rather. And so I didn't delve into the books after that, but I did read The Hobbit prior to the Hobbit trilogy coming out. So I have read one of the stories, just the shortest, most childish of the stories. But yes, I have had a long history with the film franchise. I remember living in Singapore watching them and there was a expo special event that happened while we were over there of like this entire conference hall turned into entirely Lord of the Rings theme. You went around and got to like learn about different behind the scenes bits and there was a gift shop where we purchased various trinkets from the films and there were actors dressed up as ring wraiths of walking around the room and like scaring people mainly me. I have very fond memories. Lord of the Rings became very important for me. I'd watch it every year, the trilogy pretty consistently. It would be one especially if I had like a holiday or if I was feeling unwell, then it would be a good one to kind of just pop on because I knew it so well. So yeah, I have a very key relationship with these films. What about yourself? Well, this might be the most controversial take of the episode, but I actually didn't get into these films until probably the second one, because I have to say, I watched the first one at a friend's sleepover, of all things, and I remember they had the DVD of it, I remember watching it and kind of getting annoyed that it didn't have a conclusion, because I didn't realise that Lord of the Rings was going to be this huge epic trilogy and everything. So when they kind of just ended, I was like, oh, the usual grumblings of a child. But once I watched the second and third one, I went to the cinema to see them. I came to appreciate them a little bit more, but it wasn't until I got older and, you know, started to understand the deeper themes of it and everything. That was when it became solidified as one of my favourite franchises ever. Honestly, I feel as if out of all the franchises out there, all the trilogies, this is is near perfect as you're going to get to a consistent overarching story. I will agree with you though in the books. I think J.R.R. Tolkien is a absolutely brilliant writer. I think he is a linguistic genius and everything. That being said, his prose, as you said, is very tough to get into. I've read The Hobbit as well and I remember when I was younger I tried getting into the Lord of the Rings books but it's very much weighed down in a lot of prose, a lot of backstory, there's a lot of songs and everything and that's not a bad thing. I feel as if you have to be initially anyway, you have to be in like the right frame of mind to tackle it but when I started I'm going to admit it, I wasn't the biggest fan initially but I came to appreciate it, I grew to love it and yeah, that's why we're here today to basically talk about why these films are influential and that's the thing though, this nearly didn't happen. 
because for those of you who don't know, this film was first proposed to Miramax and of course the one and only horrible, horrible person himself, Harvey Weinstein, was running it at the time and he nearly ruined this franchise right off the bat before it even had a chance to run, didn't he? Yeah, it was very strange that he was convinced that there wasn't going to be an audience if they made it quite as long as Peter Jackson wanted to make it. And so he tried to convince Jackson to cut down the movie and make it one short movie out for all three books and keep it within two hours, I think it was. And Jackson was so against this. He was like, this is impossible. This must be an empty threat. And Weinstein threatened to bring in John Madden or Quentin Tarantino to replace Jackson. But Jackson was like, no, this isn't going to happen. But it, they managed to sort of get it away from Weinstein's uh, grubby fingers over to another studio, didn't they? Yeah, they ended up going to New Line Cinema and yeah, after that the rest was history. We finally got the franchise that fans deserved, moviegoers deserved and really just not only a great set of films but also just such a passion project and a love letter to Middle Earth and Tolkien's work as a whole. And it was actually fascinating as well, before we dive into talking about this series of films, it is quite interesting to see how they were really close with the fans they would keep up with and again it was probably a bit primitive but the internet forums and things like that at the time to update fans on what was coming and things like that it's quite rare I have to say to see that because most film studios especially nowadays they'll kind of just do something whether the fans want it or not it's not really they were getting an input but they don't really include them do they? No, no they don't rather than ostracising them and treating them as consumers, I suppose, is the right mm-hmm. term. It's like they weren't just treating them as, oh, these are the fans we're targeting it towards. These are the people that love the franchise and we want them to feel as if they're going to get something special out of this. That's not something that I came across in my research, so that's very interesting to hear that fans were considered, because I know that in so many properties they aren't. It is very much what the studio believes the average Joe wants to see more so, instead of a more point it seemed to just throw in a pg-13 nudity sex scene kind of thing they didn't feel like they had to do that although there was earlier versions of the script that did include arwen joining then rohan and having like a nude bath with aragorn and uh, they were going to have gimli swearing more they thought that would be like a funnier thing to include for the general audience but they decided against it it's good that they take fan consideration to heart not that that should always be the case because sometimes fans don't know what's best for their own franchises but it is good to hear i was gonna say what is this game of thrones But apparently after the 2004 Oscars, and I don't know if you came across this in your notes, but did you know that apparently Peter Jackson and Elijah Wood actually skipped the celebrations for it and then they went to a Lord of the Rings fan party instead? I may have heard that at one point or other, but no, I didn't remember it if that was the case. That's very fun. I'm glad that they did that. It's a nice time all round, I have to say. It's completely separate, but I just uh, recently read about Greta Gerwig during the premiere of Barbie. She would just go from theatre to theatre and check how things were going and like she'd be able to go and just change the volume on the cinema if she felt like it wasn't quite optimum in that particular theatre. That's funny. <laughs> Will we just dive into it? Yeah, let's jump straight into that. We'll be right back just after we light these beacons. 
Welcome to Shatsunami, a variety podcast that discusses topics from gaming and films to anime and general interests. Previously on Shatsunami, we've analysed what makes a good horror game, conducted a retrospective on Pierce Brosnan's runs James Bond, and listened to us take deep dives into both the Sonic and Halo franchises. Also, if you're an anime fan, but don't forget to check us out on our sub-series, Chatsunani, where we dive into the world of anime. So far, we've reviewed things like Death Note, Princess Mononoke, and the hit Beyblade series. If that's Sounds like your cup of tea, then you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcast apps. As always, stay safe, stay awesome, and most importantly, stay hydrated. Hey, Anbar. Hey, Karen Vane. We need a promo. You know, like where we talk about what we do on our podcast. On our sugar-coated murder podcast? Like how we love to bake and talk about murder? That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Because if you kill people, we will talk about you. This episode is sponsored by Zencaster. If you're a podcaster that records remotely like me, then you'll know how challenging it can be to create the podcast you've always wanted. That's where Zencaster comes in. Before I met Zencaster, I was but a naive podcaster, recording on low quality, one track audio waves. <laughs> But with Zencaster, you can kiss those fears goodbye as they provide crystal clear audio and HD video. Plus, with our all-in-one podcasting suite, recording with guests is extremely simple. From local recordings to post-production, Zencaster has it all. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code CHATSUNAMI. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. So let's talk about the effects and production of this film series because let's face it, whenever people think about Lord of the Rings, you know, there are so many aspects that you can grab and say, oh, this is absolutely fantastic, that's absolutely fantastic. But I feel as if the major thing it's got going for it and the thing that especially lets it hold up in the modern age is the effects and production. So what do you think, first of all, about the effects of this film? Do you think personally they've held up i think considering the time period they came out they've held up brilliantly there was a couple of moments in my most recent rewatch where i went that still doesn't hold up quite as well like the beetle bits with perhaps like Gollum, they cgi'd in that look a little bit computery but considering when they came out they're still incredible it's absolutely magical how they were able to utilize special effects in that way and like the set pieces was so wonderful the locations in new zealand did this film such a service as well that they were able to sort of create minas Tirith, helms deep rivendell the shire like these are all such beautiful either set pieces or created in cgi and it just looked wonderful and one of the studios that can be credited for most of the work done for this is a company called weta digital and weta workshop who dealt with the prop making the environments doing the effects for Gollum, which was seen as a breakthrough and it always makes me laugh because do you know what film came out at the same time as the two towers is it king kong no the scooby-doo film and that looks horrific in comparison <laughs> 
The original or the second one? Uh, the original, apparently. Okay. They both look terrible, mind you, but... Well, yeah. I would say it's night and day, but let's face it, it's more like night and night. <laughs> it's not very good. In that you don't want to see it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, as you said, there were the creations of the sets, which were dubbed as bigotures, and I absolutely love looking at the pictures of these. You know, they actually had bigger versions of Minas Tirith that weren't obviously the sets but they were like bigger versions so they could do the panoramic shots that they could film it they even had a bigger version of the ring which i thought was wild yeah i i, I always thought found that really interesting when i'd see like this gigantic ring that they created for various shots the weirdest bit i always remember and i could be misremembering this but they were so dedicated and obviously getting paid for the work but they were dedicated that when they were creating the chain mail they actually made it by hand and i always remember watching this behind the scenes thing and i don't know why i remember it so vividly but there's a scene where it's like all these guys huddled in a room making their chain mail one link at a time and i think in the corner they've got like a kidnapped smurf or something just pinned up against the wall and it just looks like the most unhinged thing ever they're like we gotta get this chain mail sorted if papa smurf is you know sitting in the corner i was like this is both amazing and incredibly frightening but the fact is their dedication to this film is definitely what makes it hold up and what i found interesting as well was there was a lot of sets that they built up but then took down immediately and there was little impact to the environment like especially with Rohan you know they built that up and then they took it down again I think they did the same with the Shire and the Shire wasn't a permanent thing until you know the films were successful and everything yeah I was gonna gonna say because I know that you can still visit the Shire now so I was about to ask whether or not they took them down and put them back yeah I'm sure that's the case for the Shire it's definitely the case for Rohan and I think they did it for the Shire they took it down but then obviously the Lord of the Rings is probably like a big thing for New Zealand tourism. I know it has been a huge thing for New Zealand tourism. When the Hobbit films came out, they did a big campaign with New Zealand Airlines to spread art on the side of the plane of characters from the Hobbit and like all the um, instructional videos for like safety videos were like Lord of the Rings themed. But speaking of the artwork as well, they also brought in Alan Lee and John Howe who had um, previously illustrated for Tolkien's work, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, they didn't just grab a random artist or someone in the studio. They actually brought in people who knew the story, what they were actually illustrating. It's not like they said, paint the Balrog and it was going to become like this AI monstrosity. And it did seem that the production was made by people who clearly cared about this. It's not like, and again, I'm not doing this whole, oh, Hollywood, you know, doesn't care about their own films here. But it seemed as if it was a rare instance that Everybody was on board and they were just so dedicated to this series. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely wonderful to see. And then, like, you can tell the care that was put into it by these people and the love that they had for these films. Peter Jackson, growing up, he wasn't a huge Lord of the Rings fan as a child, but eventually fell in love with the series and the movies. And I'm pretty sure he ended up reading even the Similarian. He's a pretty diehard by the end, I believe. I mean, after 10 chapters of Tom Bombadil singing, I suppose. <laughs> it's like Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, funny you should mention Stockholm, because I know a lot of the kind of themes or the story of Lord of the Rings is very much Scandinavian in its approach. I think 
Sweden, Norway, and Finland were big influences on Tolkien for the set pieces and designs of the story. Yeah, because I think, was it not Beowulf, the story he was really into as well, which he drew inspiration from? Yeah, I believe so. Going off of that point as well, one thing I actually was really surprised to read was the fact that all three of these films were filmed within 15 months consecutively. That is fascinating it was brilliant for the consumer the audience for us but i bet that was an absolute nightmare for the team to create all three films in that kind of time span i mean when you when you look at like the extended editions and the stuff they even cut out that's so much time spent filming on very elaborate scenes so you imagine it can't have just been like one take scenes they must have gone through so many takes as well so that would have been a lot I mean, what was even more interesting was when I was researching for this episode, I didn't realise that there was even more unseen footage. And granted, it's mainly behind the scenes stuff, but there's like hundreds of content that isn't even included in the extended edition or really anywhere else. And I thought that is just bizarre that even in 2023, about 22 years on, there's still a huge amount of content that's still coming out. And that is just, it's absolutely fantastic. That kind of leads on as well to another absolutely fantastic aspect of this film that of course being the musical score which was composed by Howard Shore and I have to say we were just talking about this before we started recording but the music is iconic. It is the music is so beautiful for all three films the different instruments that are used there's not a whole lot of singing though there is some and each one is done in a very kind of unique way from very kind of folksy songs sung by Mary and Pippin to very kind of dramatic elven songs sung by the likes of Aragorn or others. And then of course you have Pippin singing the very kind of somber song that's the backdrop of Faramir charging in to retake the port city. I can't, I can't remember its name. Osgiliath. Osgiliath, yes. And you call yourself a fan. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do you know, see that song and you're sick of me sending you the memes for this. But I cannot watch anybody eat a tomato the same again without thinking I know, it's such a gross kind of way. Oh, it's just so disgusting. I know it's supposed to be, but it's just it's so disgusting. But there's all these videos that people have started making of their pets or other people eating a tomato and then they just overlap that song and they sing it themselves. Oh, it's just it's so funny the meme game's on point is what i'm saying (laughs) but something else that i find really interesting about the music score and it's something that i didn't really think about initially because honestly see when you go into a film you usually get swept away with the score or it makes you feel you know happy scared all the range of emotions but when you dive into this particular soundtrack something that caught my eye was the fact that it doesn't shy away from its linguistic roots and what i mean by that is there's particular songs that really capitalise on one of the interests that Tolkien had, which was, of course, his interest in the linguistic side. You know, he came up with the Elvish language, the Dwarven language. But one of the particular songs that caught my eye was the song titled The Revelation of the Ringwraiths. And this is actually based on a poem written by the co-writer of the film, Philippa Boyens, who had wrote this in, I think it's... Adunaic 
I think it's the language apologies to all the Lord of the Rings fans out there who simultaneously <laughs> went, oh no. And apparently that's a, for anyone curious, it's the language of the Numenorean men of the Second Age. So the fact being that they didn't even have to do this, but they still said, oh yeah, we're going to get this ancient language. We're going to tie it into how the Numenoreans are related to the Ringwraiths who were once men, they got corrupted, and we're going to turn this into a jamming chant <laughs> for them to come up as if they're just like ghoulish figures and they're going to try to kill Frodo. I, I just find that absolutely fascinating. Did you know about that? No, I wasn't familiar with that at all. That's very interesting. And I mean, of course, as well, you've got the use of the elven language as well for some of Aragorn's songs. And this is actually something that was quite interesting as well. The fact that the soundtrack has like a very international feel, which is something I never really considered, but I was telling you, Andrew, of course, before we started recording, that apparently Viggo Mortensen, the actor who played Aragorn in the film, he came up with his own tune that he wanted to sing in Elvish, and he wanted to give it a Celtic theme. And I think the song that they're referring to is the one that he sings, maybe in the extended edition, that's been a while since I've seen the theatrical one, but he sings it to himself when him and the Hobbits are travelling in the countryside and he's thinking about his true love Arwen and you know he sings that song and Frodo asks him who is that they also included things like a Polynesian choir for the Minds of Moria music they used a mix of African and East Indian instruments for Lothlorien to give it more of an Eastern and ethereal kind of sound it's actually really impressive and at the same time just absolutely breathtaking how much care and attention they put into the soundtrack. I mean, don't get me wrong, I wasn't expecting them to put in Battle Theme 5 from the copyright-free soundtrack in, but... Or just, like, do what a lot of uh, films do and just have standard pop songs just kind of thrown in at various points. Yeah, don't stop me now as Aragorn's running towards Mordor. As Boromir's being thumped by the third arrow. I get knocked down. I get up again. <laughs> and the final point for that before we move on is how they use the music also for characterization. And this is something quite interesting, consider what we were talking about earlier with the ring itself, where apparently they used a boys' choir to sing when the ring was trying to seduce others into temptation. So you know when Boromir's got the ring and he's looking at it and, you know, it kind of paints that idea of the ring trying to be innocent. Oh, look, we're the good guy. You know, take the ring. And then when the ring, quote-unquote, emerges as this, like, evil and malevolent thing and it unleashes its evil side, then they use a lot more darker music. They use the black speech in the background. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, that is very interesting how they are able to present that tone in such a way that you wouldn't necessarily have thought much about but has such an impact on the storytelling. I just love how we're talking about this and we're like this is absolutely fantastic the themes are great and everything but when we first saw this film I guarantee you and I were both just singing along going da 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 
So let's move on to the cinematography. And it's really no secret, is it, that the cinematography in this entire trilogy is, I wouldn't say near perfect, but let's face it, it pretty much is. Yeah, the cinematography of all three films is absolutely wonderful with the shot. I don't know if it's a helicopter shot. I don't think drone shots were around at this point. So it must have been, but some of like the helicopter shots they got of the characters walking in the mountains is gorgeous. Some of the just general set piece shots of just characters together so well put together like it feels like you're kind of part of that fellowship through how Peter Jackson was able to film the movie and the shots that were used. Do you know funny enough when you brought up the helicopter I think there's a blooper I could be wrong on this but is there not a blooper where Sean Bean is Boromir trying to do a scene and then all of a sudden there's just the helicopter behind him that flies up and he's just like oh okay <laughs> but no I completely agree I think the, the core thing for me anyway is the fact that every location in particular is very distinctive. It's like, you know, when you get your stereotypical and your generic fantasy or sci-fi cities or towns and things like that, you get a lot of greys and beiges and, oh, yeah, it's generic town, it's this or that, but these are places that you genuinely would want to visit. You've got the Shire, which is just verdant, it's green, it's just absolutely fantastic, it's peaceful, because I know the Shire is based on the English countryside, of course. You've got Minas Tirith, which is just an absolute... That is my... I would go as far to say, other than Hobbiton, of course, that is probably my favourite fantasy location. I was going to ask you if you could choose one place in the Lord of the Rings to visit, where would it be? Oh, that is a tough one. I would have to give it to Hobbiton, sadly. Purely for the aesthetics and everything, it would be Minas Tirith, hands down. Minas Tirith is just such a breathtaking city. I remember the first time I saw it, and it's just a city that is essentially carved into this mountain. I, I just remember seeing it for the first time in the Sutherland, thinking, wow, that is incredible. But on the other hand, it's A, on the doorstep to Mordor, and B, I don't think the Gondorians really know how to party and or eat the same as the Hobbits, so but what about yourself? See, this, there's a difference, because I think I would live in Hobbiton. Oh, yeah. Of all of them. But just visiting, I think I would want to visit somewhere a little bit different, because us both coming from Scotland, it is a little bit like Hobbiton in various parts of Scotland, and so I feel like I've seen it, but like I would live there. Whereas if I'm visiting somewhere, I want to visit something that's remarkable, something I haven't seen before. So so I'd probably say Minas Tirith would be one of the most interesting places to visit if I was able to go around the whole city up to the uh, top to the castle and have kind of an overlook over there because you see such beautiful sights from there. There are other places. I mean, Rivendell would be gorgeous to visit as well. That would be remarkable for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see that. So I think I'd probably say Rivendell, actually. I think if I could visit one place, it'd be Rivendell. I would definitely take Rivendell over Lothlorien because Rivendell is very, you know, I'm going to sound like a real estate agent here being like, it's open air, it's got a lot of nice views, it's close to the Hobbits. It's prime location if you want to raise a family there, you know. Whereas Lothlorien is your stereotypical elf 
elvish settlement in the middle of the woods and everything. It's very otherworldly and things. And don't get me wrong, it's really cool the way they did it. But to visit there and live there, I mean, as you said, much like Hobbiton, Scotland can get quite dark as well. So, I mean, I feel as if I've already left that with Lothlorien. So. The trouble with Lothlorien, though, is you have some blonde lady just kind of wandering through very creepily and is saying strange proclamations about visions that she's having. I was on the Amazon Prime series. <laughs> That's nice, Galadriel. <laughs> Go sell over there. It was a hit. Okay, Galadriel. It was the most expensive show ever made. It doesn't show. <laughs> Oh, anyway, next week, well, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> no, we'd, we'd have to have actually watched the entire series for us to do an episode on that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, I dipped out after episode three, I think. <laughs> I think I got past episode two and that was about it. Either two or three. The one where she jumps out the boat, spoilers, but anyway. I keep being told, like, you need to give it more time, but like, two hours, I feel like is sufficient time to decide that you did not enjoy it. But here's the thing, what would you rather watch? Half of that series, roughly, or the extended edition of Return of the King. I mean, I know what I would rather watch. Yeah, obviously you'd watch Return of the King Senate Edition, and I did. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I love how neither of us actually said that we would go visit Rohan. <laughs> I did consider Rohan, but it is this kind of plains. Like, it's a horse, it's a horse land. And, like, horses are fun. And I would love to ride some horses, but, like... There's nothing there. It's not very interesting. I do love Rohan as a faction and everything, but as a tourist destination... Maybe not. Mind you, okay, so between like Rohan's main city, is it just called Rohan or is Rohan the region? Oh my god, we're going to get ripped apart for this. Between where the Rohan capital is and like Helm's Deep, which I believe is still within the region of Rohan, there were some pretty beautiful sections there. And that little town that got raided by the the orcs, also very pretty. The main region of Rohan that we kind of see is just kind of a bit boring. It's actually called Edoras, thank you very much. Oh, you looked it up, nice one. You're going to, like, edit yourself saying that, like, earlier in the conversation, so you sound really smart. Oh, you mean Edoras? <laughs> yes, of course. What pleb would not know Edoras? Oh, God, I'm going to get crucified if I say it's like White Run from Skyrim, but that kind of idea. Open air, fortified town, not very good to hold up in if you're going to get invaded. That's why they went to Helm's Deep, of course. Helm's Deep is not a place I would want to go. No, it, it's a bit concretey. Well, not concrete, it's a bit stony. Yeah. And the fact there's no exits. There is a tunnel system. They all got into that tunnel system to run away in. All the the women and children did, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Which, okay, bringing up a point, my partner, she said, so how does it work with the women and children who just ran away there? Like, does someone have to go fetch them? (laughs) Oh my God, you're right. (laughs) Are they still running? The war is over. (laughs) Eowyn, Eowyn, come back. Keep running, children. (laughs) Or make for minister. They've learned to mimic our partner's screams. I can still hear their voices. Stop. I'm still alive, woman. Such a beautiful singing voice. <laughs> But speaking of places like Helm's Deep, Minas Tirith, something that I do find interesting as well is the fact that the film doesn't shy away from throwing you into these grand locations as well as the visceral action that accompanies them. Because as much as I wouldn't like to visit Helm's Deep for a myriad of reasons, you know, in particular the fact that I don't want to get skewered by an Urukai, it doesn't do it so much. I mean, there are violent moments in this franchise, but they don't make it 
gratuitous. They don't do it like, oh, look, it's all bloody. No, whereas they do have moments like that, but they don't really linger, if you know what I mean. You know, like Game of Thrones, for example, where it's like they chop someone's head off and then they spend the next 10 minutes going, oh my God, he's not got a head. And everyone's got blood absolutely all over them. (laughs) Yeah, and there was like the main characters, uncles, aunts, roommate, twice removed. Yeah, I mean, between the Battle of Helm's Deep, the Battle of Minas Tirith, the, especially the finale for the Fellowship, which still gets me, it doesn't treat the audience as a passive viewer. You know, as you were saying earlier, it takes them along in the journey and makes them feel like they're part of the Fellowship. You're not watching three people walk through Middle-earth. You're joining Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli through their journey. You're not just watching two hobbits walk to Mount Doom. You're following, you know, and so on and so forth. And I have to admit, going on to something you were saying again about the things that don't hold up, something that I did notice, and I'm curious to hear if you noticed, to this as well that see the further these films went on the less realistic some of the action became and i feel as if it's more apparent with legolas especially i watched a very interesting video on the problem with legolas he's kind of too perfect they kind of keep upping the stakes on like various silly action scenes that he has to make him super cool but they have to like differentiate him from aragorn who's also the cool guy in the group so they have to create much more fantastical ways that legolas is cool like the shield surfing taking down the oliphant they managed to humanize him in certain ways like his competition with legolas and clearly seeing that it irked and that he did have that competition but yeah I can certainly see what you mean about how they had to create very strange action special effects for scenes including Legolas which became much more apparent in The Hobbit but was still prevalent in each subsequent Lord of the Rings movie yeah because I feel as if it doesn't entirely undermine the battle for Minas Tirith but when you see Legolas doing that kind of stuff and you're like wow those Rohan people they weren't putting their all into taking those Oliphants down the people are Gondor like oh yeah they were chumps compared to Legolas yeah kind of undermines that at times but again it's supposed to be the rule of cool I suppose the oh look it's Legolas he's a nimble elf and so on and so forth which I know is kind of a problem with the Lord of the Rings as a whole that the elves are a wee bit too perfect at times except for Helm's Deep ironically enough because I know in Helm's Deep they pretty much get slaughtered there moving on from that the final point I've got for the cinematography is just that I feel personally that it does strike a near perfect balance between slower character building moments versus high octane action you know because when you see the trailers for this I always remember the Requiem for a Dream song playing over Legolas is surfing down shooting people in Helm's Deep but yeah I feel as if there's more to it than the action like the action is very very cool I mean especially with scenes like and again I think we'll probably talk about this later but with the ride of the Rohirrim where they actually got over 200 horse riders to ride for that yeah the fact they got 200 people for that scene and that is one of the best scenes probably of well yeah, I, I would say of cinema, it's one of the best scenes. Just that whole sequence of them riding towards them. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, other than the obvious one, like the Ents, I feel as if that's probably the only moment where I'll say it kind of drags on a bit. But would you say that the films strike that perfect balance between slower character building versus the fast-paced action? 
I do think they do very well. I think that if you look at it, there's two very different movies. There's the theatrical version and the extended edition. And they do come across as quite different in like movies just purely down to how certain things were included that in some instances were a nice additional scene to add more to the film and uh, other occasions you understand why they were cut because they didn't really add very much to it and and sometimes were just overly silly and so it's tricky because i think that the tone of the main film is balanced so well with how they deal with the cinematography i in particular you've been touching on this but i in particular have not really mentioned other elements of the cinematography other than the kind of wide shots of the locations the Jackson's crew were able to catch the different angles of the faces of the characters that were able to demonstrate the emotions of those characters are i think i mean this is film 101 like every film will do this but i think it's just emoted so so well within this trilogy that just such subtle changes in how the characters are filmed demonstrates so much about them as characters no i completely agree with that it's actually one of the points that i've written down for later mind you but one of the characters i feel as if encapsulates this perfectly is bernard hill who plays theoden i feel as if some of his expressions even without speaking are just absolutely fantastic there's a scene where he's talking about how his sons died and everything and he's just talking about how you know obviously no parent should have to bury their child and it breaks down and everything there's an excellent scene as well for the ride of the harem where he just he just looks at Minas Tirith and just that one look says it all it's just this like weird mix of absolute horror watching this once proud city burning under the pressure of this just horrible evil force it goes from that that horror to suddenly acceptance and then he gains his composure again. Bernard Hill in those scenes is brilliant and the capturing of his emotions through the cinematography is indeed fantastic. And I'm sure we'll get into this later with regards to the various sort of casting that happened. It was interesting that Bernard Hill was actually in line as an option for Gandalf at one point. So I'm very glad he instead was cast as Theoden because I think he plays that role brilliantly. I have to say though, and I feel as if this is a perfect time to move on to talk about both the characters and the actors who portrayed them because going on to Gandalf was a not like a conga line of actors that were just waiting to take this role on or rather that they were asking people to take this role on yeah it's it's so interesting i think gandalf probably more so than any other character had such a large number of actors that were either considered or put their names forward for i know the likes of tom baker and sam neill would be a very strange choice but he was in line peter o'toole passed away now i'm not sure who tom wilkinson is but i know he was considered as well as likes of patrick mcguin who and anthony hopkins but i know mcguin was supposed to be denethor but then they were like he's too grumpy for denethor the the most grumpy character in the entire series and so uh, that particular actor was not considered it's like that scene in the substance where it's like i need a grumpy actor no that's too grumpy Yeah, I mean, I was even surprised when Sean Connery was offered the role and then he was just like, no, I don't get it. And he went to do the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Something like that, yeah. And I think they considered Morgan Freeman, which would have been a very unique take on Gandalf. I'm, I'm sure Morgan Freeman would have done well in the role, but it seems a very different kind of choice. Well, I mean, ironically enough, he technically got that role in the Lego movie, did he not? That's true. He is very Gandalf-y in the Lego movie. Because I know technically Gandalf is in that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, I know as well that prior to McKellen, Ian McKellen, that is, sorry, they were looking at Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen's very good friend to play the role. And they watched a scene of the two of them together. And they were like, actually, his co-star would be a much better choice. So instead of Patrick Stewart, we got Ian McKellen for the role of Gandalf. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I feel as if they made the right choice there. Maybe it is just biased because we've watched these films so many times and we're used to it. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a Star Trek fan. I can't imagine Jean-Luc Picard going in there being Gandalf. I don't know. I think he would. He's a great actor, all in all. It would have been a very different tone of Gandalf. What McKellen provides to the role is that he has that kind of hint of mischief in him as well as the kind of wisdom. And so I think McKellen portrays that particular tone, which I think is very important for Gandalf so, so well, which I don't think Patrick Stewart would have conveyed in the same way. Patrick Stewart would have provided that kind of wise portrayal, but I don't think he has that level of mischief about him. Because I have to say, speaking of potential casting in this, another one that you and I were, of course, talking about before we came on was Stuart Townsend to... Apparently, and again, I had no idea this was a thing because I always assumed that Viggo Mortensen was picked as Aragon and they said, oh yeah, this is going to be our Aragon, we're going to go ahead and start filming. But they had a completely different Aragon waiting to go for this film. Yeah, so they deemed Stuart Townsend after already casting him to actually be too young, which sucks for Townsend, but as we discussed prior to the recording, it doesn't sound like Townsend was super committed to the role in the first place place so it was probably for the best that was kind of a mutual agreement to part ways i don't know if that was necessarily the case but that does seem to be what happened i know that it was then kind of up between vigo martinson and russell crowe as to who would be the aragorn russell crowe tried to audition for boromir as well which would have been a choice yeah a choice (laughs) there's right choices there's wrong choices and then there's that choice do you know who new line initially wanted to be boromir no actually nicholas cage I'm conflicted. (laughs) Oh, one arrow. Oh, two arrows. No, not the hobbits. (laughs) They're in my eyes. There's good in men. We can take it to Gondor. Any people who are very good at editing software, get on this. I feel as if, you know when people talk about like deepfake technology and AI voices and things, I feel as if they should be halting all development and getting like a cut where Nicholas Cage is born of here. Get on that, guys. Come on. One, uh, there's <laughs> other couple of uh, unique kind of things with regards to casting. One was going back to Gandalf. I know Christopher Lee was so committed to wanting to be Gandalf that he sent him a picture of himself in a wizard's costume to be a Jackson to cast him as Gandalf. And Jackson was decided instead, you'd be a better Sarah man which worked out quite well plus did he not know tolkien personally so christopher lee did have a relationship with tolkien in some way i can't remember the exact relationship but i know he was obsessed with the stories i think to the point where he was kind of giving notes during the film process of how like certain characters should be how certain things should be and then filmed so christopher lee was very keen on this movie franchise and like being a part of it so it was so wonderful to see that such a fan was a part of these films have you heard about the behind the scenes of his death scene i don't remember so for anyone who doesn't know in the theatrical cut i think they just say he's locked away in his tower and you know they just they never mentioned saruman again i had not seen the theatrical version for a while so i couldn't remember whether or not we did actually see saruman's death or if they just kind of picked up the orb and was just like oh we found his orb yeah i think that's how it plays out in the theatrical version they just find the orb and they're like oh yeah and the ants are like 
like, he's inside his tower. And you're like, okay, well, we're not going to get to see it. But yeah, in the extended version, they have the whole back and forth. And that's when Prima Wormtongue, who's played fantastically as well by Brad Dorf, apparently they filmed the scene where Freddy gets stabbed. And they came up to Peter Jackson and they went, that's not how somebody getting stabbed in the back sounds. <laughs> it was like okay because I think he served in World War Two or something. He did. He fought for the I think the Finnish army or something during World War Two or something like that. Yeah, but he straight up told Peter Jackson that's not how someone sounds getting stabbed in the back. He's like, you have to have a kind of oh, as if you're surprised. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> Just imagine being Peter Jackson, like, okay, Mr. Lee, whatever you say. It's a fair bit better than the likes of Alec Guinness in the original Star Wars, who just had such disdain for the film and had zero interest in this ridiculous production. Instead, you have Christopher Lee, who's like so involved in it all. Oh, yeah, it was definitely a labor of love for the most part. I mean, I know there were some challenging things, especially with the Hobbits, which I know we'll talk about next week when we get on to the Hobbit drill. But yeah, things like having to spend hours putting on hobbit feet and things like that. And I think it was Sam, you're at the very end of the fellowship where he runs into the water. Yeah, and he steps on a bit of glass. And did you know that Aragorn broke his foot on the helmet? I can't remember if I had this conversation with you or someone else, but there was that whole meme about Aragorn breaking his foot on the helmet. Why isn't the Sean Aston stepping on the glass thing like just as much of a meme? Because I feel like that's essentially the same fact. Well, because because one of those clips made it into the film and the other didn't. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. But I mean, it, it's kind of just around the scene. Because I, I mean, I do the same thing as I do with the Aragorn when I turn to my partner and be like, you know, Sean Astin stepped on glass here and they had to halt production for like three months. Do you know, can you imagine if they did keep that? Ah, Mr. Frodo, ah! Oh shit, Mr. Frodo! <laughs> oh no, I've got tetanus, Mr. Frodo! <laughs> I can see why one's memed, but one does not simply meme this <laughs> scene. Just kind of going back to the casting, there was just a couple of other that kind of put their names forward or were actually cast at one point in the film that were then recast, who were then casted like 10 years later in the Hobbit franchise. So it's quite interesting that they still had such an interest for these actors being a part of it. So they brought them into the Hobbit franchise, which we'll talk about more uh, in the next episode. Did you know that Tim Curry was in line for Saruman? I love how you just could have ended that sentence with, did you know Tim Curry? That would have piqued my interest immediately. <laughs> you know, you know, you know Tim Curry? Yeah, Tim Curry. Yes, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Curry is a fine actor, but <laughs> as Saruman, I don't... See, this is the thing, it's like, on the one hand you think, oh, that would never work, but you don't know. I mean, there's an alternate universe out there where this is a two-hour film. Tim Curry, Saruman. I were going to the one place that hobbits can't get us. Space! <laughs> Nick Cage is Gandalf. It's directed by Quentin Tarantino. Nicholas Cage wasn't Gandalf. He was Boromir. Oh, Boromir. Gandalf. Well, that's even worse. Come on. Morgan Freeman. Oh, Morgan Freeman. Sorry. Morgan Freeman as Gandalf. And Boromir played by the titular Nicholas Cage. And funny enough, Stuart Townsend is still in it. Oh, the horrifying alternative future of this film. But what I will say, though, is we've touched on a couple of examples there, but I feel as if the core fellowship do a really great job and have a lot 
of chemistry together, especially with Sean Bean. I know there's the meme of, oh, Sean Bean dies and everything, but I feel as if his relationship with, like, the Hobbits and, you know, the tearjerker scene when he finally dies and he has the my brother, my captain, my king speech at the end with Aragon. The only person, and I don't know if you've heard this theory about Frodo not knowing Legolas's name. I have. My partner and I were discussing that during the end of Return of the King. It's like, he mounts everyone else's name and then he's just like, this has his mouth open like, ah, when Legolas comes in. Though I did know that I don't believe he says Merry and Pippin's name when they come in. I know, but it's still hilarious though to think. It is very funny to think about because there is only one line ever spoken between them and it's when Legolas says and my bow in the entire film franchise even the extended edition that is the only time that Frodo and Legolas share a line together that is absolutely crazy it's something that I have to admit must be like a sign of the film being so good that I've never noticed that before and then people brought it up and you're like oh yeah this is quite interesting but I feel as if obviously the fellowship are the stars as it were even when they split up they've still got their solo careers as it were you've got obviously the Gandalf storyline with Aragorn Gimli and Legolas you've got the Frodo and Sam story I mean you've got Merry and Pippin which I like Merry and Pippin I have to say but in kind of small doses at times I feel as if when it gets to the end stuff it lost me for a bit when I first watched it but I mean see overall I I feel as if there's not really a bad I'd actually say that there's not really a bad performance in this film no there's not really when i was younger i would sometimes fast forward through certain bits that i didn't find as interesting a lot of the time it was the frodo and sam bits when i was younger because i wanted to kind of get to the more actiony kind of sections but i've kind of now appreciated those scenes a little bit more i have to say elijah wood is probably my least favorite performance of everyone else there are certain moments that he does show off his talent quite well but i think there's a lot of scenes where I'm a bit like that look kind of goofy yeah I think it's the way it's shot because there's some angles where it makes him look like a thumb and I'm like I'm not all for this camera angle could you like push it up a wee bit or okay we're gonna go with this angle okay good but funny enough when I showed my partner this film for the first time she actually really disliked Frodo when they got to the bit at the end where he's in the bed and they're all hugging him and saying yay well done Frodo she turned around to me and she went why are they saying thank you to him? He did nothing. It was all Sam. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I, I think it's universally agreed that without Sam, he probably wouldn't have gotten very far. No, he very much would not have gotten very far without Sam. He would have died on several occasions without Sam. But yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing of like the burden of carrying the ring that he was able to fight it off for the most part till like kind of the very end. It wasn't until Gollum intervened that we likely would have seen the ring fall into the volcano in the first place. I would say looking back on it, he probably is maybe the weakest character in a way. Like, he's not the worst before I get stabbed by a thousand replica stings and everything from angry Lord of the Rings fans here. He's not the worst character, but I think the older I get, the more inclined I am to prefer characters like 
like Sam, because let's face it, they practically had to CG out his huge titanium balls of steel in half the scenes, where he basically got betrayed by his friend, he got left for dead nearly, and yet he still put up with all his you-know-what and carried him through to the mountain, and it's just such a glorious scene. He's taking the whole gardener role that he's been hired to do very seriously. Yeah, he just wants to go back and plant some daisies or something, but no, no, Frodo keeps messing about being like, I can't do it, Sam. It's okay, Mr. Frodo. One, two, three. And, you know, just throws him into the fire. But my alternate ending aside here, yeah, I I feel as if I prefer Sam and a lot of the other characters. There's not really any other characters I can think of off the top of my head. I thought Eowyn did a good job as well. I quite like the extended edition stuff with her. I like the little insight into how terrible she is as a cook that we don't get in other places. Also, I learned today that Andy Serkis voices the Witch King of Agmar. <laughs> I thought you were going to say voices go. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, boy, have I got some news for you. Now that is pretty cool. <laughs> Andy Serkis voices quite a few different characters. Do you know, it's actually amazing because, and I'm getting ahead of myself, I'll briefly touch on it this week, but apparently because, you know, he was so impactful for the series as the motion capture actor for Gollum as well as actually providing the voice and everything, that I think he became a director for the Hobbit films, one of the secondary ones. I believe that is the case. Also, sorry to correct myself, he voiced the Witch King of Angmar in the Fellowship but not in the Return of the King where he's like, no man can kill me. That's That was someone else. Yeah, and then you get the cool scene of I am no man, and then boop. That's um, my partner's favourite scene. She always leans forward and waits for it. To be fair, that is a pretty damn cool scene. That whole sequence, see, the whole battle, Chef Kiss, absolutely fantastic. Because, I mean, Carl Urban is also in this film, which I keep forgetting. I know, I always forget that Carl Urban's in this film playing Eomer, and it doesn't look like him, so I always forget. Like, he's in so many different franchises. Because, I mean, Peter Jackson's even in this film, granted as a extra. I can't remember who he is in Return of the King. I know in the first one, when they go to the first town. It's in The Prancing Pony, isn't it? Yeah, he's Carrot Man. He literally walks by the camera and he eats a carrot. Yeah, he always has like a weird little scene. There's a scene in the Hobbit films where I think he pokes out of a barrel or something. Oh, what a scamp. Yeah, everybody does a great job. There's no one else, really, is there? No, there's some that are, like, whatever. I used to really like Faramir, but then I kind of find him a bit boring now. I mean, Denethor's good. Denethor's brilliant. He's awful, but brilliant. Oh, yeah, he plays the role so damn good. And as we said, we can't look at the act of tomato eating the same again ever since that. He is, he's just driven by absolute madness. That's another scene that I have to say that I was disappointed to cut out the theatrical cut, where Faramir has the flashback to when they retake Osgiliath. Okay, so you think they should have kept that into the theatrical version? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm the opposite. I was watching the extended and I was like, this scene doesn't add much more than just be like, hey, Boromir was actually kind of cool, right? There's a much worse scene in the extended edition that is Denethor imagining Boromir over Faramir's shoulder. <laughs> yes. It's so poorly <laughs> presented. I don't know what they were thinking because it looks so unnatural. They photoshopped in Boromir that just kind of turns around. Is that when he does like the L'Oreal here? 
hear flip. He does. It's yeah. so strange. And like he does like a little turn, smiles towards the camera and starts like walking towards. He's not actually moving. So and it doesn't look like he's actually moving, but he's presenting like he's moving. And it's so poorly done. And I was like, why did they think this was a good idea? This is the most obvious cut from the extended to the theatrical I could sort of see. Because I was like, thank God this didn't make it to theatrical because this is ridiculous. I can't wait for the director's edition where they've just superimposed Nick Cage's face there instead. Or Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson apparently declined the role. Yeah, I can live with that, to be honest. I mean, I love Liam Neeson films for the most part, but yeah, yeah, I can live with that choice. Sarah, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. <laughs> if it's a ring you're looking for, I can tell you, you're not going to get it. <laughs> it's been taken. And then that's it, just cut the film. Where are Mary and Pippin? They've been taken. They've been taken. you have three arrows in you. It's a special set of skills that I've got. <laughs> So our final point is really a bit of a subjective one where we were both talking, of course, about what makes this set of films great. And, you know, we have gone through all the objective ones. We went through the effects, the production value, about how they're fantastic, about how all the people were dedicated to the film, how the actors were 100% behind their characters and the story. We also talked about the brilliance of the musical score and the cinematography and Speaking of the characters, I just want to say that for legal reasons, Hugo Weaving was also a great actor as well, because I realised we forgot to mention him previously. Oh yeah, <laughs> Mr. Baggins. Yeah, because I was like, who have we not mentioned? <laughs> Poor Hugo Weaving waiting. <laughs> And Rivendell, like, no one remembers me. You know, we talked about all of them, the cinematography, the music score, all of these objective reasons, essentially, about why these films worked. But now we're going to go into more subjective territory. So, Andrew, I'm going to hand it over to you first. And this is going to be the broad question of the night here, but why do you think this trilogy succeeds? It's a tough one to kind of put your finger on for me. I think that the fantasy storytelling of Tolkien does it a huge service. But as we've seen from other adaptations of that that did not stand the test of time, that aren't spoken about in such esteem, it's how this film in particular was shot, that the set pieces, the cinematography, which we've already mentioned, it's able to tell this fantasy story in such an immersive way that you feel so apart of the adventure unlike any other fantasy film that i think i've ever seen and has been able to do it involves its audience so much in not just one because there are several different stories ongoing during this trilogy and you're interested in each character in each storyline respectively that you have your favorites and that even with your favorites there are other characters that you just fall in love with as well that there are so many memorable lines and things that 20 years later are still being brought up and referenced, joked about, memes have been made. I mean, one of the original memes was one does not simply walk into Mordor. 10, 15 years ago still transcends to now with Aragorn kicking a helmet. It stood the test of time that people joke about it, but they love it as well. That it's not something that's being made fun of necessarily. It's enjoyed. People can laugh at it and also with it. And that you're being told such an impactful story through this intensely unique and extensive medium. I don't know if I've uh, touched on some of what you'll say or if I've just rambled a fair bit there, but I'd be interested to know your thoughts. Well, before I go on to my thoughts, you forgot about one very special meme that also arose from these films. What's that? A dubstep variety meme of the hobbits getting taken to Isengard. <laughs> 
Of course, how could I forget taking that with Sizingard? It's absolutely brilliant. And there's also Saruman Trollololing as well, which is a wonderful meme. I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh, I have. Because <laughs> after that, I showed my girlfriend that meme, the taking the Hobbit Sizingard one, and she looked at it, looked at me, and then shook her head, and I was like, okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> Like, okay. My partner loves it. She was waiting for the line to come up. I mean, then again, I do have a curated playlist that I'll need to add whenever we're out driving and be like, oh, how did this song get in here? But no, I, I think they're all fantastic points that you brought up there. Honestly, as we talked about, there is so much objectively that just went right into this film. This was a film that was a massive gamble. It had tons of money put behind it. It had a vision. Every Everyone wasn't sure, but they still went ahead because they loved it. I think in that regard, it's commendable. And I think that's why ultimately it did succeed because there were a lot of people that had faith. But in terms of why I think personally Lord of the Rings succeeds now as a franchise is one particular thing, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but it's the idea that the whole central theme of these films is the theme of hope because it's a very well-known fact, of course, that the whole idea of Lord of the Rings is the idea of the quote-unquote little man both in a literal sense of being hobbits and figuratively trying to do what's right. And I feel as if, especially nowadays, but I feel as if if you go even further back to when these were written, because Tolkien, of course, fought during the First World War and he no doubt lived through the effects of the Second World war it would have been hard for him to stay positive and especially nowadays it's hard to stay positive in a world where nihilism and apathy are just rampant you know you see it everywhere you go whether you log into your latest social media whether you walk along the streets and you see people you know just going through a rough time and it might have been ostensibly worse back then but the fact is those kind of ideas are always going to plague people it's always going to be this thing that follows people around. And I feel as if the counter to this is one particular line that I don't think was even used in the books, but it was used for the movie, which I was really surprised at, but it's a quote that I personally take to heart every time I think of these kind of things. It's the scene at the very end, and you'll know the one I mean, where Sam is talking to Frodo, and Frodo has essentially given up. He nearly kills Sam over the rings influence and you know he's beaten down he's just at his wits end he's saying what's the point of going on then Sam has this beautiful speech about all these heroes and the story and everything and then he basically summarises with one sentence and the sentence of course is there's still some good in this world and it's worth fighting for and I feel as if that encapsulates the entire trilogy. This is a story about hope it's an escapist fantasy, don't get me wrong but the way it uses this idea of the good guys versus the bad guys like it's not like something for example Game of Thrones or a kind of political drama or anything like that it's not overly complicated with the way they portray each side. I want to hear the orc side. Maybe they've got some very good opinions. <laughs> In fact, I think it was actually slightly off topic, but I think it was a Russian retelling of Lord of the Rings where they tried to paint Sauron as the good guy for trying to bring in the 
first realisation. Suffice to say, didn't really go down very well, but that's a story for another day. But even if you look at other moments in the trilogy, like for example, I brought up earlier about Bernard Hill's amazing performance as King Theoden, and just that moment where they do the Rides of the Rohirrim, it always sticks with me. And I think as of this day, I looked up the scene again on YouTube, and I think it's got 40 million views on one person's channel. That is how beloved this scene is. The reason I think that stands out as well is it also from the other side encapsulates this idea of hope because he sees the city, as I said, he sees it burning, it's under siege, there's no hope, it's as if men will fall right there at them. But you know, he composes himself and he becomes the leader that the Rohirrim need at that moment. You know, he has that great speech about riders of Theoden rising up and you know, he yells the iconic death and everything and they just pounce towards them and they know that they're going to die. They know that there's probably a slim chance of them getting out of this but if it means for just one more day they can give the world of men hope and liberate them from this evil then there's a chance there and apologies for getting sappy over this but you know it's a whole story as I said about hope about that idea of escapism and being able to see the better part of people but I'm curious to hear what you have to say because I apologise for that long-winded ramble there. No I mean it was as long if not sure than my own. It's interesting what you were saying about that quote because that then reminds me of mine that I popped in that from the very first film that is taken directly from Tolkien of all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And I think very kind of similar to what you were saying, that resonates with me so well that it's kind of a theme of the film that you could let things pass you by, you could refuse to be involved in these events, but you choose with the time that you are given what impact you are going to make, whether it's a personal impact, whether it's a more grand, profound impacts, you have that power over yourself to decide what are you going to do with your life. And I think that is so beautiful. And I think that Tolkien writing that 100 years ago, or however long it might have been, might have been more closer to 80 years ago, hits home to me so hard. It definitely, and I know this is a weird thing to say, considering it's one of the most iconic pieces of literature in the 20th century, but... It's amazing how his way of words really did resonate with so many people and how because of that book, because of this world that he built up, the fact that we got such a prolific and such an iconic series out of it. You know, because let's face it, this film could have easily been a cash grab. I remember reading about when they were going to make this into two films. They were going to merge Gondor and Rohan together and everything, and they were going to do a whole load of things to cut corners. But the fact that they got the chance to tell their story and then tell it in such a beautiful way. I always remember one of the memes that people say about Return of the King is the fact that it's like a never-ending story. But before I go on, just to say what I think about, are you a fan of the ending? This is a tricky one, because I would have said yes, but watching a couple of days ago, I did find that it was dragging a fair bit, and I was kind of like, all right, we've had about three, four endings now. Meanwhile, my, my partner was in tears by the final ending. She was like, I don't understand why Frodo has to go. And so that was, it's quite sad, but I can kind of understand that particular ending. But yeah, I do find it drags. I think that they could have condensed some of the ending down a little bit. Like a soprano's cut to black. <laughs> Someone fires <laughs> an arrow cut. 
cuts the block. The ring hits the lava and it cuts the block. Oh, that would be the worst. <laughs> Frodo puts on the ring at the end and he says, no, it's mine. <laughs> the ring on and it cuts to black. You don't see what happens after that. Okay, what's worse, that ending or the Michael Bay ending where he puts it on and it's like the Transformers credits? What I've done. Do, 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 do. Like, what's worse? If Michael Bay did it when the ring hits, the entire world was to explode. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the volcano exploded. <laughs> Isn't that enough, Mr. Bay? Not no, enough. No. More. More. Yeah, I have to say, though, I'm probably with your partner in this one. When my girlfriend and I, we watched it together for the first time, we were both just absolutely sobbing wrecks by the end of it. Because, you know, it was funny when we were watching the scene where everyone's hugging Frodo and everything, and she was angry because she was like, well, Sam's the real hero. Why they saying thanks to him, but not to Sam? And I thought that was kind of funny, but then several scenes that really hit me in the feels, and I mean, Boromir getting struck by the arrow tear feels, because there are a couple of moments where genuinely they do either make me tear up or they just make me quite emotional. Boromir scene in the first one, that always gets me, that even though, you know, he was corrupted and everything, he still managed to bring himself back from the brink in those final moments. I thought that was absolutely beautiful when they kept fighting until those three arrows happened. I was like, Jesus, what an absolute unit. Even for Sean Bean, what an absolute unit. For the second one, you know, the hope at Helm's Deep, that even though all hope is lost, he still rides out to meet them and then they get rescued by Gandalf and go. But in terms of the ending itself, the bit that always gets me is the coordination scene where, you know, he says, my friends, you bow to no one because, you know, it's it's so nice. Even though he is a king, he is the king of pretty much all men in Middle-earth at that point, or rather of Gondor. And he's fulfilled this prophecy of being this king. And yet, he's just so goddamn humble. It's like, oh, Vigo, you, <laughs> you lovable scamp. He bows down to these four hobbits that, by all means, if it was any other king, it would be the opposite way about. And it's the fact that they are so grateful for these literal small people who have stood up against the face of, or rather the eye of literal evil. It gets me every time. But again, I was quite emotional as well with Frodo leaving, giving the book over to Sam, and of course Sam starting his family. And everybody has a happy ending, except for Boromir, but yeah, let's not talk about that. But most of the Fellowship have this very nice, complete ending, because it's something that I feel as if nowadays people would complain about. You know, there would be one person saying, oh, it's too perfect, or oh, it's this or that. But for this kind of film, I feel as if it ends perfectly with the door just closing on the tail. But then we get the spin-off show with Gimli and Legolas is like buddy Don't cops. Tempt them. They will do it. You know they'll do it. <laughs> Don't tempt me. Yeah, unfortunately we have mustered all of the goodwill and quite frankly all of the praise we can give to this iconic series because if you haven't seen it and yet somehow you are still listening to this out of curiosity or whatever honestly I would wholeheartedly recommend this series. I feel as if this is probably one of the most perfect trilogies of all time and it deserves to be praised. It deserves to be held up not as a mindless fantasy action film even though part of it is 
it deserves to be seen as the iconic piece of pop culture that it is. This film franchise is probably the best film trilogy ever made. I hope that when it is eventually remade, and you know it will be, there is a fair bit of time before that, and hopefully I never get to see it, because I can't believe that they could improve upon this franchise. It's like Harry Potter, do what you want with it. Lord of the Rings, (laughs) don't touch our precious. On that note, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me in this fellowship, as it were. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm looking forward to revisiting The Hobbit in the next episode. Yeah, next week is going to be an interesting one. While we were very positive and gushing over this film, not that we're going to be cruel to The Hobbit, but next week we are indeed going to be discussing how The Hobbit probably didn't live up to the hype as well as its predecessor but indeed that is a story for another day but if you would like to hear more from ourselves or future episodes of Lord of the Rings Month then you can catch us on our website chatsunami.com as well as all good podcast apps just look for the red panda under the name Chatsunami and we'll see you there if you would like to hear our episodes one week ahead of time then please feel free to subscribe to our Patreon Patreon subscribers can as I said get early access to our episodes and also exclusive content and where can they find that patreon slash chatsunami patreon.com slash chatsunami as you were saying you can catch that on patreon.com forward slash chatsunami i would also like to give a huge shout out to our pandalorian patrons robotic battle toaster and sonia thank you so so much for supporting the show but until then and before we have another ending stay safe stay awesome and most importantly stick him in a stew